Um, and so before I begin, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read our scripture. We're in Genesis 45. It's 28 verses. I do understand that's a lofty amount of verses, but um, it is God's word, and I would like to, to read all of it. And then from there, I'll pray for our time. I'll ask for the Spirit to be with us, and then we'll get into what he has for us. Does that sound good? All right. Um, so Genesis 45. If you have your Bible, please open with me there. Phones, swipe to it, click to it, what have you. Beginning in verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself. Before all those who stood by him, he cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and, when he, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and, over, and ruler of, over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me and you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see in the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts, and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households, and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, Ten female donkeys loaded with the grain 
bread and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is a ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive, and I will go and see him before I die. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and mercy towards us, Lord. We thank you for your son and his redeeming work on the cross on our behalf. And Father, now we thank you for your spirit. We ask for your spirit to come into this place, to meet us, to intercede on our behalf. And Father, I ask for your spirit personally, that I would stand upon your word, that I would speak the truth and nothing but the truth. That your word would be faithfully preached and that we would all leave here more conformed to the image of your son. Now with that said, Lord, I ask that anything that is not of you, would it fall off and would we um, be attentive to this time? In your precious name we pray. Amen. So one of my favorite movies um, is The Karate Kid. The original Karate Kid, the, the 1984 Karate Kid. We've had multiple remakes of the movie, but the original. And for those who may not have seen this movie, essentially the premise is there's a young man by the name of Daniel LaRusso who is somewhat bullied, kind of an underdog, and um, he, he likes this girl named Allie, and he goes to school one day. He's trying to impress this girl. He's trying to get this girl to like him. But her ex-boyfriend, the, the bully, so to speak, um, kind of abuses him, makes fun of him, bullies him. And then Daniel runs into this guy named Mr. Miyagi. And he, Mr. Miyagi comes upon Daniel. He protects him from these, these bullies. And then Daniel asks Mr. Miyagi, can you teach me? Karate. I saw what you did. I, I want to learn how to protect myself. Mr. Miyagi said, no, I, I, I don't want to do that. But I'll, I'll bring you down to this dojo where these bullies reside, and I'll talk with the, the guy, and maybe you know, we can come to some type of mutual agreement. Well, that doesn't go so well, and then Mr. Miyagi gets upset, and then he then proceeds to begin training Daniel LaRusso in karate. Well, what's interesting is once Daniel starts his training, Mr. Miyagi begins his training by having Daniel do some mundane and kind of odd tasks. Wax on, wax off, he's wiping a car, he's sweeping, he's doing chores, and Daniel's confused, he gets frustrated. Daniel's like, wait, wait, I came here to learn karate. Why are you teaching me how to clean up? I, you know, I have a mom, I, I can do, I know how to clean. What, what does this have to do with me becoming a good karate person and protecting myself down the line in the future. Well, see, in Mr. Miyagi's mind, he knows that this type of training is going to prepare Daniel for something down the road. He knows that the things that he's experiencing, the, the difficulties that he's experiencing through this training is going to prepare him for something a little bit greater. 
Mr. Miyagi knows that, but Daniel doesn't. Daniel's just focused on his circumstance. He's focused on the present. He just sees something that has nothing to do with where he needs to go. And he's questioning Mr. Miyagi on whether or not he knows what he's doing. He's questioning Mr. Miyagi's plan. Well, that sounds a lot like our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Sometimes we're in places in our life where God has us and things aren't going the right way. We're experiencing some suffering in our life. Things are difficult. And we think, Lord, what, what are you doing? If, if you're sovereign and you're good, then, then why isn't the goodness of you being portrayed or being bestowed upon me right now? Why am I having to go through difficult things? What happened to you being a good God? We begin to question his plan. Or we think, well, if God really is in control, if he really is good, then why must his people go through hard things throughout our lives? If you love us and we love you, why not protect us from harm's way, from evil circumstances, from things that we can't control? I think that's a relevant Valid question for the people of God. Why is it that God is allowing me to go through what I'm going through right now? Well, as we come to our text here in the middle of Joseph's life, in Genesis 45, I think we're, we see some of the same similarities in Joseph's life. Now, if you remember, Joseph's story really starts in Genesis 37. Joseph is one of 12 from Jacob, and Joseph is then sold into slavery by the hands of his brothers. Joseph is thinking, well, what's going on here? You know, uh, Jacob's brothers were jealous of, of Joseph. Joseph can interpret dreams. He had an, an, an uncanny ability to discern dreams that he was given. Um, he was also loved dearly by his father. But then you have these 11 brothers that are become jealous and envious of Joseph. And they say, you know what? Let's deal with him. I don't like the way dad treats Joseph. I don't like the way dad loves Joseph. I think we should remove him from the situation and get some of that love that dad has given Joseph. In, and we should get some of that. I'm sure throughout that time where Joseph is in is being sold and sent to Egypt, he's probably questioning God's goodness and his sovereignty over his life. I think what we find here in the middle of Joseph's narrative is um, that same thing. Can God's people really trust if God is good and if his sovereignty is for our good? There's a, there, there's a question of God's character here. Is he a good God? And is, he, is, and is his sovereignty for the good of his people? Well, what I would want to submit to you this morning is that we as God's people, the church, there are three reasons why we can, in fact, trust in God's goodness and sovereignty. Why we can, in fact, take comfort in his plan and where we are in our life. So therefore, because of God's sovereignty or because of his infinite good control over all things, we as his people can trust that his plans do overcome evil circumstances. That 
the suffering in our life, God uses that suffering to prepare us for the plan he has for us, but ultimately for his plan. And then thirdly, God's plan is in fact always for our good. So let's dish out some of these three points and see what we have here. So let's first look at how God's plan does overcome evil circumstances. If you look with me at verses 1 through 6, um, you'll see that, and let me read that for you again. Then Joseph could not control himself. Before all those who stood by him, he cried, Make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And when he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Now, to understand what's going on, again, I'm, we're right smack dad in the, dab in the middle of Joseph's life. So we've got to have some context. We've got to know what happened beforehand. How did Joseph get into this predicament? How did, his, how did his brothers get here? So when you go back through redemptive history, we go back to Genesis 37. Joseph was sold into slavery by these same men that are now pleading for his help. His own brothers sold one of their own into slavery. Why? Because they were envious. Because they hated their brother. They were jealous of their own kind. They didn't appreciate the way God had gifted him with the ability to interpret dreams. Nor did they appreciate the way his father loved him. See, Joseph had no idea why he was given the ability to interpret dreams. He couldn't control what God had given him, nor could he control the way his father loved him. These circumstances were out of his control. He is now experiencing suffering and, and persecution because of things that he had nothing to do with. Genesis 37.3 tells us that Jacob loved Joseph so much because he was a son of his old age. Well, that sounds a lot like what, how Abraham felt about Isaac. Remember, Abraham didn't know if he was going to have that promised child. Abraham waited 100 years before he had a child. You talk about a man that endured some, some, some difficulties that maybe questioned whether or not God was good and true. Jacob had Joseph at a very young age, or excuse me, at a very old age too. So, so maybe Jacob thought that Joseph was that child to fulfill the promise that God made with Abraham, seeing that this is now, the, oh, this is the promise that's being passed down. I'm seeing it. Maybe this is it. We don't know, but what we do know is that these brothers conspired and contemplated the death of one of their own. Now, today we would call that premeditated murder. That's what these men did. They had a plan. They wanted to deliver that plan, but God stepped in. 
God said, no, I'm going to save you from death. You're going to go to slavery, but I'm going to preserve your life because there's something going on here. There's something that none of you all have any idea of what I'm trying to do. And Joseph, you can't die. By God's standard, this is evil. This is cruel. You know, this, this, this episode, this dysfunctional family um, reminds me of the Cain and Abel story. You know, back in Genesis 4, we see one brother, Cain, kill another brother, Abel. Because of what? Lust, greed, jealousy. What we see in Joseph's life is simply just another iteration of the fall. Because of one man's disobedience, all of creation and its inhabitants don't operate the right way. Evil now runs rampant. It permeates everything and especially permeates and corrupts the way we relate with one another. And unfortunately, some of those worst forms of hate come within within our own family. Many of us has experienced many, many difficult things by those who are very close to us. Sin and its master, Satan, is, is, is attempting to disrupt what God is doing. Satan wants to dis, disassemble God's plan of redemption. But here we have Joseph alive and well and in a position to help his brothers. Today is Super Bowl Sunday, right? We've got Tom Brady yet again in another Super Bowl, ninth overall, I think. Um, here we are, Tom Brady in another Super Bowl. Um, he's playing the St. Louis Rams, and some, some would argue, I would beg to differ, that Tom Brady is the best quarterback to ever play the game. I have my opinions on that. Um, but he's been given that title based on things he's accomplished throughout his career, correct? Now, Tom didn't choose the title of the greatest of all time nor did he choose the God-given ability to perform at an exceptional and high level, nor did he choose to be a part of the New England Patriots who also happens to have the greatest coach of all time. Okay, Tom has just stepped into a pretty good situation out of his control. Now, unfortunately, though, I would hazard to guess that over 50% of the country is rooting against Tom because of those very circumstances, okay? He's had a pretty easy road to where he is, and people are like, well, anybody can do what you're doing, Tom. It's been easy, right? So folks hate Tom Brady. They, they do not like Tom Brady. They, they want Tom Brady to lose this game today, and none of those things are his fault. So Tom experiences jealousy and envy, I'm sure, from a lot of his peers that play quarterback and play in the NFL and, and us that wish we could do what he could do. Um, he, he has experienced hate from others. Now, he obviously isn't going through the things that Joseph had to go through because of hate and jealousy and envy. But I think that the, the point is pretty clear. In the same way that Joseph has experienced persecution and hate from those around him. Tom is experiencing a much innocent level of that, but the thing is the same. Sin is the reason for this. Sin clothed in jealousy and hate 
does not care who you are or what you do. As long as you are in this world, sin will manifest itself in all kinds of ways, and it will affect us. And what we see in Joseph's life is an example of that. Now, it would be easy for us to shake our heads and wag our fingers at these brothers and say, you know what? They're wrong. How dare they? Hindsight is always 2020. But I would pose a, a couple questions to you. I would, I would say, or ask, have you ever been one of those brothers? Have you ever manipulated or lied or harbored jealousy or envy towards your neighbor, your spouse, a friend? Have you gone to great lengths to marginalize or hinder someone from gain because it was going to come at your cost or come at your bottom line, your status quo? Especially for someone that maybe didn't look like you. You slighted them because of their class or the color of their skin or how much money they made or the culture they represented. See, Joseph's, Joseph's brothers betrayed him. See, evil doesn't have to be obvious and flamboyant. Evil can very well be subtle and deceptive. It can be manipulated, calculated. And that's what's going on here. Some would read this story and, and think that, well, what, you know, Joseph escaping death was just simply luck or it was just simply by chance. Well, you know, I, I would submit to you that it was God that preserved Joseph's life. You know, as you come along through Genesis, when the latter parts of Genesis, you kind of see God take this back seat. In creation and up until roughly the middle of Abraham's life, God is very, very prevalent and, and obvious in the workings of his people. But then the, the further we get along in history, God is kind of in the shadows. And one could think that, well, maybe God is being disconnected from this world. Maybe God isn't really aware of what's going on in the lives of his people. You know, we think that a lot. Things happen and we think, man, Lord, where, where are you? But see, that's not the case. God is very aware of what's going on here. See, God had different plans for Joseph and his family. What his family doesn't know is that God will go to great lengths to see his plans come to fruition. Way back in Genesis 12, God promised a man named Abraham that from him would come a people of his own possession, a people that will reflect all nations, a people that will be blessed and therefore be a blessing to those around them. That was the promise that God made. That's what God said to Abraham. The same God that promised these very things to Abraham is the same God that's in the midst of Joseph's dysfunctional family. See, God isn't absent in our trials and difficulties. And we'll see that. God knows exactly what's going on here. And he has a plan for it. God's character is on the line. Think about it. If Joseph dies, then that would probably lead to the rest of his family dying due to the famine. 
And if that happens, then what God had promised would come back like a bounce check. Now, in other words, if, if what God has promised does not happen, then life as we know it will be drastically different in a very, very bad way. Think about that for a second. All that we would know, all that we're doing right now in worship will be for naught. God's plan does, in fact, overcome evil actions. It overcomes evil circumstances. God's plan is what's preserving the life of, Jake, of, of Joseph. Now, I'm sure some of you are thinking, but, you know, Jared, how is slavery better than death? If God is good, then why, why even have him go through harm? Why not just save him from the harm entirely? Why even put such a thing as slavery in this man's life? Well, let's look at verses 7 to 15. And here we'll find our second reason to trust in God's sovereignty and goodness. Because of God's sovereignty, we can trust that God will use our suffering to prepare us for his plan. Now, I'm not sure why Joseph had to suffer the way he did, but what I do know is that God was aware, and therefore, God provided for him throughout his suffering. God had a plan for Joseph, and that plan, for whatever reason, included a season in which Joseph was going to go through some difficult things in his life. Now, I would hazard to guess that when Joseph was initially sold into slavery by his brothers, he was probably very confused, very hurt, felt very betrayed. Could you imagine what was going on in Joseph's mind while he's sitting in a jail cell, while he's been shipped off to a foreign land because of his brothers? You know, family is supposed to look out for one another. Family's supposed to love one another, supposed to care for one another. Family isn't supposed to do what his brothers did. If, if, if that were me, hate and revenge would be in my heart. I would be plotting how I could get back at these brothers. Because of my sinful flesh, my response wouldn't be grace or mercy. It, it would have been anger, selfish justice, righting wrongs. I would have questioned God's goodness and character. How can a supposedly good God allow such an evil thing to happen, especially at the hands of my own family? But when we read these verses, we see a man that shows forgiveness and mercy. How, how can that be? How is that so? If you remember back to Genesis 42, you'll find that Joseph wasn't always this forgiving, as we see here in verses 7 through 15. When Joseph initially saw his brothers again for the first time, Joseph's response was he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. In other words, Joseph, well, he wasn't having it. He, he didn't forget what those men did to him. There was something brewing in Joseph's heart. There was a, a pain and anger that was going on there. So much so that he even accused them of being spies and had them jailed. How about restitution there? I'm sure when Joseph was sitting in that, those jail cell, in that jail cell for 
who knows how long he was replaying the entire scenario when his brother sent him off, manipulated him, betrayed him. You know, Joseph probably wondered when he would be released, when he would ever be saved, when he would ever see his family again. And the moment he laid eyes on his brothers for the first time since that hurt, all that came back to him. You know, um, the first time I met my dad, I was 13 years old. And, you know, for the first 13 years of my life, I wondered where my dad was. I remember going to school events, athletic events, and seeing all the other kids with their parents, seeing their parents, you know, participate and support their kids. And, you know, I would notice that, well, I have a mom here, but I don't have a dad here. And that, as a child, was, was hard. It created in me an anger and a, and a sadness, a hardness. Uh, the, the summer of 2005 came, and my dad was getting out of jail. And I was going up to Connecticut to meet him for the first time. Yeah, it, you couldn't tell me it wasn't Christmas. This was the most glorious moment in my life. Proud, a son meeting his father. Proud. I get up there, and the, the, the month before he gets out, I, I see him. The first interaction I had with him was at a table inside the penitentiary. We're sitting across from each other. I can't touch him. He can't touch me. But we can look at each other. We can talk. And I'm silent. I have no idea what to say. Never seen this man in my life. A month later, he gets out. And instead of sitting across the table, he's got me up in his arms, smiling at me, holding me. I'm 13, so he's a, he's a pretty big guy. Um, and I'm just, I, I, I am elated. There's, there's no better feeling in the world. Well, fast forward another month. And things change. That, that moment of surreal and, and joy, it went away. I saw less and less of my dad. I spent the summer with him, but, you know, you know, my dad had a life he missed out on, a decade he missed out on. And I thought I would be a part of that 10 years that he missed out on. And that wasn't the case. I was wounded by him. I thought I was going to be the apple of his eye. And I wasn't. And so for the preceding 10 years, from 13 to 23, I m maybe have spoken or saw him a total of 10 times in 10 years. And the, and the longer that went, the more angry I got, the more hurt I got, the more isolated I got, the more hard I got. What was my response? Anger. Rejection. Pride, hate. I didn't, I didn't want anything to do with this man. You know what else I did? I hated God for it. I ran from him. I couldn't believe a, a God that's supposed to be good would allow such a thing to happen. I, I, it wasn't my fault my dad was in jail. Why, why punish me for that? So I thought in my mind. I thought, what, what happened to you being a good father? You know, I was suffering because of the actions of someone else. For 10 years, I didn't know when that suffering would, would end. 
Suffering of any kind makes the best of us question God's goodness. No one is exempt from it. You and I can't run from suffering. We can't hide from it. We can't control it. It's real. And church, let me tell you, there's no need to be ashamed of it. It doesn't define you. It does not control you. It does not tell you who you are. Your failure is not the sum total of an individual. See, God is very aware of our circumstances and trials. Better than that, God is right in the middle of your suffering. And God does not waste it. He doesn't ignore it. He comes, <laughs> he comes further into it. He presses in. Four years ago, I had the opportunity to confront my dad and forgive him. During those 10 long years of not seeing him and barely speaking with him, I learned to trust and look towards my Heavenly Father. God showed me that I do have a father, an ultimate father, a better father. But those 10 years only... 10 years before I could say something to him, God had to do a lot in my life. There was a lot I had to learn and grow from, a lot I had to repent from. There, there was a massaging out of some evil in my heart that he had to get rid of and free me from. He used it to grow me, to mature me. In the midst of my own suffering, God not only provided for me, but he was with me. He, he, he grew me. Through repentance, he, repa- he prepared me for that moment where I would look across the table and say, and say, Dad, I forgive you. It's okay. I understand. I love you still. That's hard. But, but it wasn't me. The Lord was in the midst of my life. See, Joseph didn't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm just going to forget everything that happened. I'm going to forgive these men. What happened to Joseph was him remembering how God had provided for him throughout his suffering. God worked on Joseph's heart. God had to save Joseph first from his own anger and show him that he really is good, that God really does care for him and his family. See, if, 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 if God doesn't do this, then Joseph doesn't know how to forgive and love his brothers. It wasn't an accident that Joseph became the second most powerfulest person in the land of Egypt. A, for, a foreigner becomes the right-hand man to another foreigner who's opposed to the people of God. That's not an accident. God knew exactly what was going on in Joseph's life. God used this man's suffering to prepare him for something greater, for something better, for something good. He, didn't, he, he used this man's suffering not only to change his heart of stone to a heart of flesh, 
but he prepared him for a holy task. Joseph wasn't just providing for his family. He was participating in God's plan of redemption. Joseph was a part of something big. See, Joseph had to first experience the love of God for himself before he could extend that love of God. Now, I don't know what the specific and detailed circumstances that many of us go through, that many of us may be in this very moment. But I would submit to you that God is near and dear. God has always been on the side of the least and the brokenhearted and the bruised. Always. There is not a circumstance that he doesn't know about. There's not a pain and, and hurt that he has not experienced. See, in verses 7 and 8, we see that Joseph has came to an understanding that God was, in fact, the great conductor of this orchestra. God really was in charge of this whole thing. Verse 7 says, And God sent me before you. To do what? To preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. See, Joseph knew this wasn't just about his family. Joseph and his brothers and Jacob, those were God's people. God made a promise to Abraham long ago that I've, I, from you will come a nation from my own possession. And right now, God's character is on the line. But God here has proved his faithfulness. For you, I'm going to preserve a remnant. I sent you here. Because I knew Canaan was going to dry up and there weren't going to be any food. That's why I sent your brother before you. See, seeing his brothers and their need reminded him of what he had went through. And it probably validated what he had went through. When his brothers came back, Joseph probably thought, ah, oh, okay, God, I see what you did there. And I, and I wouldn't take it back. You love me so I could love them. Joseph's suffering was preparing him to experience the love of God. See, before that, Joseph... Before he could see his brothers a second time, Joseph needed to become more like his heavenly father. And sometimes that's why we go through the things we go through. It's hard. The things that we go through, the, the, the ways we're hurt, please hear me say it is hard and it is real. And there are still questions of why. But what is true and what is real is that God is there. He is there. Brothers and sisters, take comfort amidst your suffering. 
know that God is with you. That's why we call him Emmanuel, God with us. So much so that God isn't far, he isn't absent, he's familiar to the situation. But you know how we can really, really believe that and know that to be true? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. See, God didn't leave you and I hanging. He didn't leave us alone in this ugly world. Instead, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, says Paul in Philippians 2. See, God himself in the person of Jesus enters into our ongoing struggle by putting on skin and experiencing everything this world has to offer. See, Jesus, Jesus knows all too well what it's like to be betrayed. Betrayed. He knows what it's like to be persecuted, to be shamed, to be rejected, to be marginalized against, to be spit on, beat, abused. He knows what it's like to be stripped of one's dignity. He knows what it's like to be hated because of where you come from, what you look like. See, God knew about his own son's suffering. He knew what he was doing. He knew that this type of suffering, the suffering of his son, of himself, had to happen because it was only going to prepare him for an ultimate task. The way in which our suffering servant came and suffered on this earth had to happen. And God did that for you. For me, what was that ultimate task? It was redeeming a people for his own possession. What he told Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and everybody in between was, I am coming for a people and I will do whatever it costs to get my people. So much so, he put on skin he put on clothes like you and I put on clothes. He stepped into this world and he said, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to come down here and do it for you. Jesus suffered on your behalf. Why? He's a good God. But he's a just God. And he knew if, 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 if this thing was going to happen, I'm going to step in their place. See, he suffered because he knew that's what it would take to free you from the bondage of this world. He suffered so that you would never know what it's like to feel God's judgment and wrath. Joseph's life is merely just a shadow, just a glimpse that points to our true suffering servant in Jesus. 
It's a pre. It's just the 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 prequel to the real thing. The same God that prepared Joseph through his suffering is the same God that prepared his own son for the suffering that he endured, which led and leads to our own provision. Those who bear the name of Jesus will experience difficult things in life. Because you're a Christian does not exempt you from hard things. In fact, Satan is doing all he can to make those hard things more of a reality every day. But what's unique and interesting is that God doesn't leave you. God knows exactly what Satan's up to. And God has done what needed to be done to defeat him on your behalf. Paul in Romans 5.3 tells us that our suffering produces endurance, that produces character, that produces hope. That hope is Jesus returning and making all things new. In the meantime, God is just simply making us, more, making us look more like him. Think about it. Uh, the, the illustration of a diamond being made. It starts off as a, a lump of black stone, but through intense heat and pressure, out comes something that's worth thousands of dollars. This, this infinite, uh, unbreakable substance. But it had to go through something to get there. Sometimes that's the journey that God puts us on. And then when we get out the other end, we're like, wow, Lord, you... You have been nothing but good and merciful to me. Thank you, Father. This leads us to a third and final reason to trust in God's sovereignty, which is this is because of his sovereignty, because of his goodness, God's plan is for our good. We can trust that what we go through it's for our good in the end, but ultimately for his glory. What we come to see throughout Joseph, this section of Joseph's life is that God is in the business of saving his people at any cost. God saved Joseph. He provided for Joseph throughout his suffering. And then as we come to the end of the chapter, we see that God is saving and providing for his family in spite of all that they have done. See, in verse 10, Joseph tells his family that they will dwell in the land of Goshen. Well, if you remember, Goshen is the best of the best in Egypt. Then in verses 16 to 24, you see Pharaoh give Joseph's family more than enough to survive their situation and circumstance. A foreign leader opposed that, who opposes the God of Israel provides abundantly for people that he doesn't really like. If that don't got God written all over it, not sure what else would have. See, in, in, in my neighborhood, we would call that going from rags to riches. Joseph's family just, they just 
did a major come up. They went from being very, very poor to, to having a little bit more than they needed. Now, because of God's sovereign goodness, he raised up Joseph, set him over all the land of Egypt, and gave him the means to provide for his family. Now, the provision, the provision isn't so much about the material things, but it's that the provision is their life was saved and preserved. More importantly, what God promised to his people throughout Scripture is being fulfilled because God is fulfilling it. God has not forsaken those. In spite of the sin, the flaws, the issues that we have with us, God still, not, still doesn't forsake us. God is demonstrating to us through Joseph's life that his provision covers a multitude of sins. When people of God trust in his ways, they can be assured that they will have what they need when the time is right. When he, when he seems and deems fit, the Lord is going to provide. Now, that provision may not be what you think or, or may not be what you want it to be, but you can believe that it'll be for your good. The, the provision will come, and when it does, it's going to be what you need. Not what you want, but what you need. And that's good. Joseph's family walked away with the best land, livestock, food, and clothes, and it had nothing to do with, with what they did. It was all because God, in his sovereign plan, and in his goodness towards them, gave them what they needed. See, God's plan led to their salvation. They thought God was upset with them or punishing them, but no. It actually led to their betterment. His plan led to their good and his glory. For it, it, It's easy for us, to, for us to doubt and question if God really is about our good. See, we get so distracted with all the bad in our life that we forget about all the good that he has done for us already. The stuff that he's already saved us from. We forget about the little things that, that actually matter. Food, water, clothes, life, air to breathe. Instead, we get upset when, when we don't get that year in bonus or a child of ours, ours doesn't make it into that private school or that college we wanted them to get into. Fill in the blank. If, if God really cared about me, then blank would happen. He would give me blank. See, we, we, we can't determine God's love for us based on material things. Instead, we ought to base it on what Christ has done for us presently. Before, presently, after, and, and, and there to come. You want to know how much God really cares for you? Look to his son, Jesus. See, Jesus is the better Joseph. Jesus was the one that was portrayed by his brothers and sold into the hands of wicked men. Jesus, too, sat in a jail cell and was treated, mistreated and was lonely. He, too, was looked down upon and hated against. But you know what sets him apart from Joseph and the rest of us is 
the way in which Jesus responded. He never responded with hate or revenge or anger. Instead, he turns the other cheek. Yet while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. Christ is our proof that God's sovereignty will lead to our good. All that we have desired, all that we find so broken and wrong in this world, Christ's body and blood shed for us gives us hope. It, it, it not only seals what God has for us, but it gives us what we need to get through the difficult things. Therefore, brothers and sisters, trust and believe that where God has you is good. He's holding your hand. He's got his arm around you. Find comfort in his sovereignty. Because it means that you can't mess up what he has for you. When the difficult times come, when it feels like Satan and his forces are prevailing, prevailing, remember all the other times God has provided for you and brought you out of that situation. I'm sure this isn't, you know, we, I'm sure we've been through multiple seasons of difficulties in our life. And I, and I would hazard a guess that God has brought you through somehow. That doesn't change. God doesn't change. He's constant. He's forever. He's abiding. He's true. See, this is why our testimonies and the testimonies of others are so important. Because it makes us recall God's goodness in our own lives. And then it points our hearts to worship, to thankfulness. Therefore, friends, if you can trust and take comfort in God's sovereignty because he will overcome evil circumstances. He will not waste your suffering. And his plans are for your good and his glory. Let's pray.